0: This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Wisconsin's top prosecutor won't say whether he'll pursue charges against a group of Republicans for their role in seeking to undermine the state's election results in the 2020 presidential vote. A group of 10 Republicans, the party's slate of fake electors, could face state level criminal charges for sending a false set of election paperwork to the U.S. Senate in December of 2020. That paperwork claimed former President Donald Trump had won Wisconsin's 10 electoral votes, which were actually won by President Joe Biden. But whether or not Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call will pursue state level charges against those faked electors is unknown. Call told the Capitol Times that he supports the ongoing federal probe into the events surrounding the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, but declined to say whether Wisconsin's fake electors would face charges. One possible charge under state statutes is falsely assuming to act as a public officer, a felony that could carry up to a three-and-a-half-year sentence and a $10,000 fine.
1: In other legal news, a coalition of district attorneys and public defenders, two groups usually on opposite sides of criminal cases, are presenting a united front when it comes to the upcoming state budget. They're asking for investments of in millions of dollars to ensure the criminal legal system continues to function, reports with those investments include a pay raise for private attorneys who take overflow cases from the state public defender's office, a pay raise for prosecutors working in public defender's offices, and a progressive pay scale for both assistant district attorneys and public defenders. The coalition has been advocating for more funding for both criminal prosecutors and defenders for years. They've had some scaled back concessions in the last two budgets. Both Public defenders and district attorney's offices are understaffed across the state meaning those accused of a crime are waiting longer to have their case heard.
0: After vetoing a pared down plan to build a new county jail last month, Dane County Executive Joe Parisi is putting forward what he calls the last chance to finish the project. The talks to build a new jail have been underway for decades, with Dane County Sheriff Kelvin Barrett calling the current conditions of the jail inhumane and borderline unconstitutional. But as the pandemic hit in 2020, the price tag to replace the 1950s-era jail skyrocketed, with the project now sitting $10 million over budget, currently around $165 million total. Parisi is introducing two resolutions to be discussed by the Dane County Board. The first would move $13.5 million away from other projects around the county to a New new Dane County jail. This shift would allow for the project to continue without having to borrow more money. The other resolution would put the issue to the voters with a referendum this spring. That referendum would ask Dane County residents if they should borrow an additional $13.5 million to complete the project instead of moving funds away from other projects. For a referendum to get on the ballot this April, the board would need to approve the resolution at their next meeting on January 19th.
1: A winter blizzard could potentially derail holiday plans or provide a convenient excuse to avoid gatherings later this week. Blizzard conditions are possible, warns the National Weather Service, which forecasts a winter storm hitting central and southeast Wisconsin starting Thursday morning and continuing through late Friday night. Most of Wisconsin will likely see some snow, but what makes a blizzard a blizzard? Frequent wind gusts and reduced visibility. The Weather Service says wind gusts could get as high as 50 miles per hour and could potentially bring down tree branches and cause sporadic power outages. Those gusts will make travel particularly dangerous. Meanwhile, the wind chill could mean temperatures hit as low as 25 degrees below zero, causing exposed skin to experience frostbite in as little as half an hour.
0: And with that incoming monstrous storm comes possible travel delays. A spokesperson for the Dane County Regional Airport didn't mince words, telling the Wisconsin State Journal there's no way around travel disruptions for a storm of this size. It's too early to know yet which specific flights might experience delays or cancellations. Even if conditions aren't as bad as predicted in Madison, flight travel might still be as tricky as airports in other parts of the region might experience worse weather. But airport officials are preparing for the storm anyways, readying snow plows, runways, and even blankets and pillows for travel delays. And if you're planning to travel by car as this storm zips toward us, make sure you're monitoring road conditions and are prepared with an extra blankets, gloves, and hats. And remember to stay at least 200 feet behind snowplows. And now on to today's top stories.
1: The holidays bring with them gifts of fancy electronic gadgets and the hottest toys, but one area Blood Center is hoping that people also think of giving the gift of blood ahead of the holiday season. WRT producer Nate Buggyhout has more.
2: Impact Life is a nonprofit community blood center serving more than 120 hospitals in Wisconsin, Illinois, Iowa, and Missouri. They're calling for people to give blood during the holidays, predicting a 20% decrease in blood donations over the next two weeks of holidays. But that's a problem because even if the supply dips, the demand for blood doesn't disappear, says Dr. Daniela Hermelin, Impact Life's chief medical officer.
3: Leukemia doesn't know it's Christmas. Obstetrical hemorrhage doesn't know it's Christmas. And we constantly need blood on the shelves.
2: While the holidays certainly aren't helping the situation, blood donations have been down since the pandemic started, says Amanda Hess, vice president of Impact Life.
4: In fact, if you look at the number of first-time donors that come in the door every week, we're seeing about 100 fewer first-time donors every week Right now in 2022, when you compare that to 2019, the year before the pandemic, and many blood centers across the country have lost a significant portion of their donor base that we have not yet been able to get back.
2: When people donate blood, most people think that their blood is going to an emergency trauma situation. But Dr. Ryan Jennings with the HSHS Illinois Health System says that the blood can be needed for even the most common medical events. The amount of blood that actually is needed for even in obstetrics, I think folks often underestimate pregnancy and and the risk of what goes on with a pregnancy, it's, it's a big deal. And about 3% of pregnant women end up with a blood transfusion. Uh, by the end of their pregnancy. Last January, just a few weeks after the holidays, a coalition of hospitals and blood banks warned of a dire need for blood donations nationwide. They warned that some blood centers had reported less than a day's supply of certain blood types. That was a dangerously low level, according to a joint statement from America's Blood Centers, the Association for the Advancement of Blood and Biotherapies, and the American Red Cross. This year, Impact Life is giving out gift cards for people who donate during the holidays, hoping they might stimulate more donations. Laura McGuire, a spokesperson for the American Red Cross of Wisconsin, says right now their blood supply is stable, but she agrees that this time of year brings unique challenges.
3: We know that there are weather cancellations coming up in the future. We also need to be aware of people that might be ill and that are canceling appointments due to the fact that they're not feeling well. And of course, thirdly, the fact that people are busy with the holidays. Um, the idea of giving blood donations is not in the top of their mind. And also, I guess, of course, a um, reason that kind of impacts the blood supply, too, is that college and high schools are out of session. And the Red Cross does see about 20% of our blood come from high school and college students.
2: The Red Cross will hold an upcoming holiday blood drive at the Alliant Energy Center. Though scheduled for this Friday, the event may be moved due to the impending blizzard. The threat of striking Red Cross workers amid the organization's largest single-day blood drive was critical to a new labor agreement reached last week between the Red Cross and APSME Locals 1205 and 1558, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. To find out how you can give blood, head to redcrossblood.org or bloodcenter.org. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Woogie The spring
0: 2023 election is just a few months away. Every seat on the Madison Common Council will be up for grabs, but some familiar names won't be on the ballot. Incumbent Alder Grant Foster, who has served on the council for two terms, is one who plans not to run again this spring. Foster represents District 15 on Madison's Far East Side, which is located next to the city of Monona. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with Foster about his time on the council. This is a portion of the Alders' Exit interview. The full conversation can be found at wortfm.org.
2: Grant Foster has represented Madison's 15th district since 2019. Now, he's joining at least four other incumbent Alders who are not seeking another term on the council this spring. And he joins me now on the line. Hi, Grant. How's it going today? Great. How are you doing? I'm doing good. So you've served almost two terms on the Common Council. So why aren't you running for re-election again?
5: Well, it's a really big job. I think I anticipated that when I first signed up, and certainly had a taste of it when I ran again for my second term. But it's—I uh, guess—in my experience, it really has been essentially a, a full-time commitment, and it's been—I haven't really found a way to, to do the do it well and to try and meet expectations without really kind of giving it my all. So I've been happy to do that the last several years, but um, I, I think it's just really gotten to a point where it's tough to, to kind of continue at that level, the, the way that the kind of position is set up right now.
2: Now, you've sort of talked about this before, and you've actually analyzed the time you spend as an alder and how many hours you put in week to week. Uh, in a blog post from last year, you write that you spend an average of 46 hours a week on alder duties, from city meetings to neighborhood meetings to developing legislation to helping constituents. Can you sort of walk us through what a typical week has looked like for you?
5: Sure. Well, you know, it's, it varies quite a bit, you know, like a lot of other kind of big jobs. So it really is dependent on if there's any, you know, active development proposals or kind of certain pieces of legislation that are that are happening. But there's a, there's a lot, a lot of time on constituent contacts. So um, I just get a lot of emails from people that have different issues, concerns, ideas, and, you know, every one of them, if I'm going to do it well, it takes time just to, to kind of review what they've shared, to do some follow-up, to connect them with staff if necessary, to talk with them. Um, a lot of people need, you know, somebody to listen to them. Um, and so that's, you know, one of, the, one of the biggest parts is probably that. Meetings, I think everybody will tell you the same thing. There's just a lot. And there's, you know, there's talk about trying to reduce some of our committees or, or that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, it's a lot of time spent in meetings. And preparing for meetings there's a lot a lot of phone calls and conversations with uh, other alders city staff developers that are making proposals uh, people that want an alcohol license just a, a lot of kind of back and forth calls emails etc and then there's the kind of actual legislative work so taking ideas that others have shared um, ideas that have been out there for a while And, you know, working on my own or working with others to kind of to try and come up with solutions, to vet those solutions, to work out the kinks to it and and then actually get something introduced. And so those are, you know, those are kind of the big pieces, I'd say. And then there's just a lot of other, you know, the the number of events, uh, neighborhood meetings, uh, et cetera, that folks invite you to, that they really would like you to be there and that are good opportunities to talk with. Constituents and just kind of stay connected. You know, they just all add up. I've got, you know, right now, SASE, Eastmoreland, and Lake Edge neighborhood associations all have regular, you know, once a month meetings. So that's that's three meetings a month for those three. Glendale has got, you know, quarterly meetings. And that's, so those are just like the formal neighborhood associations. And then, you know, all the nonprofits uh, might want to talk with you at different points. People connected with the schools, you know, the friends of the library, Just you know, everybody. in in really good ways, I think want, want to connect, want to, um, want to hear from you and want to, and want to bend your ear. So yeah, all those things just really, I think add up. And, um, I tried this last term to cut down on the number of, of hours and just really struggled doing that as, and ended up having, you know, not being as responsive to constituent emails, as I would have liked, kind of letting some stuff go that I would have liked to follow up on. So, you know, I, when I when I tried to put in less than that, you know, 40 plus hours, I just felt like I was I was just kind of dropping things. And yeah, so I, I I think it's it's hard for me to imagine honestly, a, an alder doing a, a a good you know average to good job without doing at least 30 35 hours. And as, as you said, in my case, when I was Doing what I thought was needed. It was it was over forty.
2: Now, what's one accomplishment that you're most proud of in your time as alder here?
5: Well, you, I'm the the network redesign for the for the the transit network for Metro. You know that was something when I first came on as a my first term. You know there was a lot of emphasis from the mayor on the BRT, and it was clear we were kind of working um, down that path. And it was very clear to me that. Um, it wouldn't make sense to put in a BRT just over the top of our old transit network, and so I was actually the one that made the budget amendment that first year to, to set a good chunk of money um, aside to hire a consultant to begin that work. So that that was something I'm really proud of identifying early on, um, and, you know we just finalized that this year, and it should be rolling out next year. So I think that's a, that's a big one, and then another budget amendment that same first year was to set money aside for um, a complete and green streets policy. And that also, we um, are just finishing up right now and expect the council will pass that in January. And that should be really fundamental to approaching our street design in a different way.
2: And is there anything that you feel like you've left on the table or didn't quite get around to addressing?
5: (laughs) There's always a long list of stuff that you know you could keep working on. That was one of the challenges when I when I was deciding whether to run or not. I, you know, there's a lot I could do in another two years. Um, so there will be any you know, any number of things that are left on the table. But um, I also have been I've been at the, the last year I've been you know acting under the assumption that it might be my last year, and so really did a uh, an analysis of what I wanted to accomplish, and I've been really doing a lot of that this last year. So the um, updates on the Salt left on sidewalk, ordinance change. That was something that I instigated recently this year, a complete change to our street assessment policy with another one. And going forward here, there's a, there's a few things that I've gotten the, the work. So there should be a number of other ordinance change proposals in the next month or so in front of council that we'll, we'll take a kick at. And uh, overall, you know, it's the been trying to put a lot of energy into trying to make um, the common council a, a, a stronger, um, institution and make the job of being older, better, easier, um, more sustainable for future elders. So I'm going to introduce this last year proposals to extend the term from two years to three years to stagger that a proposal to increase pay. And I'm going to be taking a look at using them, the money that was approved for the, Increase elder pay, but that did not get the majority needed to get into ordinance. Um, I'm looking at a proposal to bring in on some additional administrative support for elders to help with the constituent contacts. since, As I mentioned, that's one of the big things um, in terms of elder time.
2: Now you are seen as one of the more left-leaning alders on the Common Council, and some of your key passions have been in transit, housing, and sustainability initiatives. Back in 2021, when you ran for re-election, you were targeted along with other progressive alders by billboards across Madison that targeted your stance on policing in general. Those billboards were spearheaded by a local property developer and former Republican candidate for Congress. Can can you tell us a little bit about that experience? <laughs>
5: Yeah, it was a big surprise when it happened. Um, you know, I felt like the um, it was sort of a, a it was a tack that didn't really even match up with, with with where I was at and what I and the, I think the way I had been talking about some really complicated um, issues with with the District 15 residents. But it was a real eye opener to me about electoral politics, and I think it was the beginning of really really starting to understand the amount of influence that kind of real estate developers and investors in particular you know, how much energy and money they were putting into these local Madison races I mean really as I started as, as I learned more about kind of where that where that came from and then watched those you know same same people putting a bunch of money into other campaigns that year you know I think they' maybe they felt like a little bit of a waste of money since nobody ended up running against me, but I know they were really trying to, you know, use that to get, get people to challenge me and, and other progressive candidates and just watching how that, how that money, you know, continued to come in um, and really, again, specifically for kind of real estate development investor interests. And um, you know, I've already gotten three postcards this year from, from the, the same the same interests, uh, you know, that are promoting the uh, housing forward policy. And so it's just really striking to me how much, again, how much money real estate interests are are putting into our local elections.
2: And what are your plans for the future? What's on the horizon for Grant Foster?
5: (laughs) Well, maybe we can chat in uh, a few more months, but right now I'm just (laughs) continuing the work in front of me and trying to get through this Wisconsin winter.
2: Fair enough, fair enough. Well, wrapping things up, do you have just any any final thoughts that you would like to to share with me and the people in your district as a whole?
5: Well, I, it's been a really great experience for me. I've learned a ton. Um, I'm excited to stay engaged in local governance. I think it's it's all of our responsibility. I do very much believe that we need that it's in the, it's in the city's best interest, so the people that live here. It's in the public's best interest to invest more in supporting the, the, our elected representatives. I think there's a, there's just an incredible amount that we can do if we have the right people elected and, and supported to try and, and do the things that everybody's asking for. But you get what you pay for. And um, I, I hope the conversations continue around this question of full-time versus part-time, around this question of should uh, people be compensated fairly and at a living wage to do the job and what else can we do to, to really honor and respect the people that are given so much of themselves for this work because um, it's it's not about it's not about them it's about our city and it's about having an effective local governance and if, if we if we all value that um, we need to be more willing to invest in
2: I've been talking with District 15 Alder Grant Foster, who will not be running for re-election this spring. As of today, two people have filed their Declaration of Candidacy. Uh, The deadline to file nomination paperwork is January 3rd. Grant, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. Appreciate
5: it much.
1: The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutsen. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we typically air a segment featuring news from the UW-Madison campus as produced by the student newspaper, The Daily Cardinal. But the Cardinal call is on break these next few weeks as students finish up their final exams and head home for winter break. Still, news from campus continues. The university had been weighing plans to demolish several buildings downtown just off West Johnson Street. The land would be used for a new Letters and Sciences building called Levi Hall, along with a parking lot. Currently, that land houses several communal spaces serving students from underrepresented backgrounds. One of the groups that would be displaced is Wunk Sheik, a UW-Madison student organization for Indigenous students. Three members from the organization joined producer Beatrice Lawrence in the WRT studios last Friday to explain why
3: they're concerned. For years, Indigenous students at UW-Madison have been concerned about a plan that would demolish their home base in favor of a parking lot for the new Letters and Science building. The block contains the center of Wonk a UW-Madison student group that connects Indigenous students. The university's plans would displace Wonk in addition to several other student groups supporting traditionally underrepresented populations. Joining us in the studio, and during finals week no less, are three leaders in the Wonk student group, President Yale Rodriguez, Social Activism Chair Kira Adkins, and Environmental Chair Sajin Quayle. So, Introduce us to Wong as a student organization. How many students do you have as members and what do you do? Yeah, so we are in, we're kind of like a
6: general body org for indigenous students. There's a lot of orgs within the ISC, which is being displaced by the new humanities building. But when it comes to us, we're definitely the largest one out of everybody. I would say actually our attendance has gone up significantly this past year, which is surprising because of like everything with COVID. But we probably have around, on our listserv, it's like much bigger than like, I guess in person, but like, because alumni, they're also really active within the group after they leave. Mm -hmm. I would say around 75 members in total do we reach. And then through
3: the listserv, it would probably be in the hundreds. And so you have this home base of operations. Tell me the importance of the house to UW-Madison's Indigenous students.
7: Yeah, so the ISC or the Indigenous Student Center um, is pretty much where we are in community pretty much most of the time when we are putting on any sort of like Indigenous events or like community campaigning events because like Kira said, we just are a very community oriented org And so a lot of native students when they are, you know leaving their hometowns or leaving reservations This is kind of the only space that they feel is where they're able to connect with others that look like them that talk like them and just have like similar past um, Experiences so the ISC to me was a place where I could truly just be comfortable
6: I would say definitely that the, the ISE def- has definitely been one of the most safest places for me on campus. I feel like I don't have to filter out what I say. I can generally show my true emotions and express how I'm feeling or just anything along those lines. And either someone in that building is going to know exactly how I feel and is there to reassure me or comfort me. And that's really the biggest connection I feel like I have personally just like that emotional connection with it and I definitely wouldn't have been able to get through my undergrad without it What makes it like a little more I guess ironic in a way is the Levi Hall building, it's only for ethnic humanities so it's all like the African American studies, it's the American Indian studies, it's the Chicano and Latino studies, it's all of these groups that I guess, don't fit in the original Humanities building. I'm not necessarily sure why they need another building for that. But within the like the Levi Hall project itself, there are plans to make levels and like spaces for students. But we have also proposed to the university, like, oh, then why don't you make us a new space? And mm-hmm. then it's kind of like, that's not what it's meant for.
3: Yeah. We're talking with the leadership of Chic, an indigenous student group at UW-Madison, about the university's plans to raise their house for a parking lot. You mentioned the university releasing a statement that says they're not going to, they don't have plans to demolish right now. That was after the ASM town hall last Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Um, they sent that out that message that the campus master plan has changed since 2015. Do you think that this was a response to the action your organization has taken i mean mm-hmm. people really showed up to that to that meeting and kind of showed that they didn't want this demolition to happen
7: yeah, ASM in the beginning of the meeting commented on those numbers um, <clears throat> from like the chairman people and chairwomen people um, saying that, you know, they're used to usually only having maybe five or six. And there was over 100 people that showed up. Wow. And so they actually had to kind of cause a little scene and force people <laughs> to go into other rooms and then, you know, start this very large Zoom session. And there were so many people on the Zoom mm. that the Zoom ended up crashing, <laughs> <laughs> apparently. Um But yeah, I feel like that night definitely held a lot. And there was a lot of people on the ASM chair that spoke to them saying, you know, they will remember this forever. And it's like, well, I hope you would because. It kind of seems like talking like back to what Yaley was saying with just like the administration not realizing like how much of a toll this takes on us is that like this isn't something that like we just flip off like when we mm-hmm. leave the ISC or when we you know leave these meetings with administration this is something that sticks with us you know because this is a part of our identity and this is who we are um, and so you know I just hope that they they did listen and they did take that into consideration and so I don't want to say it's a direct result. I I mean, I think that is the hopes, I guess. So maybe it was, but I think they kind of felt, they felt this pressure this whole semester because us as leadership and just other... <clears throat> indigenous student center organizations have been making such a strive for pushes this semester to just really make our voices heard on campus and so i think it's just been an overall like collaboration between what we've been doing all semester and then kind of like the cherry on top was Mm -hmm. like the asm meeting and so it definitely held a lot of emotion that night um Mm -hmm. for me and i think for all of us here specifically and so for them to not take any of that into consideration would just be like another slap in the face so I'm glad they did decide to come out with something after that but again it's like actions speak louder than words so you know they said this and they put out a statement but time will tell if that's what they truly mean Mm -hmm. (laughs) mm-hmm Thank you so much uh, for being with us.
3: We've been speaking to three of the leaders in the Wong Sheik student group at UW Madison, Yaley Rodriguez, Kira Adkins, and Sajin Quail. Thank you for joining us bright and early this morning. Thank
6: you, Thank you.
0: Have you ever looked out at your bird feeder in the depths of winter, wondering how those tiny birds are able to survive such cold temperatures? Well, future contributor Jackie Sandberg has, and tonight on Wildlife Weekly, she looks at all the ways birds stay warm over the winter.
4: Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I want to talk about birds and their strategies for keeping warm in the winter. And it's something that I've brought up in a couple of other past segments talking about how you might be able to help the birds during the winter or what uh, very strange strategies a bird might have. But really, people ask all the time, like, are the birds cold and what can I do for them? And ah, there are so many different strategies that different bird species have to be able to really thermoregulate during this time of year. And living in Wisconsin and a cold weather climate, I thought, you know, it is the middle of winter. I really want to know the answers to some of this information. And I know some things about birds, and we have to really pay attention to those factors in rehabilitation because our efforts are actually done both inside and outside this time of year. So as rehabilitators, we're working with a lot of different species. We're working with them indoors in nice temperature regulation heating cooling hvac systems where that animal is going to be able to recover and stabilize from whatever condition they're coming in with but then we have to start thinking how do we precondition that bird getting them outside in the middle of winter and what about releasing them in the middle of winter and all these other things that we have to like decide back and forth what's going to be the best thing for this animal so I like to start by talking about feathers and feather quality because that is probably one of the most crucial survival, you know, items a bird needs to have, right? Feathers are literally what makes a bird pretty much when we're saying that that Feather condition has to be really good quality in rehabilitation. We're doing everything that we can to try to reduce feather damage, abrasions, breakage, anything that would cause their feathers to be of poor quality, including nutrition. So, when we have birds in captivity, they're in small enclosures while they recover indoors, but when they're outside, they're in flight enclosures, which could be, you know, maybe it's a 12 foot long cage, a 15 foot long cage. Raptors, we're thinking, you know, a 50 foot flight pen. We're working on a 100 foot flight pen for our eagles this year. So those enclosures are not normal for the animal, right? They're here in temporary cages, trying to get back to full conditioning for release and it's usually made of wood and maybe metal and for our songbird enclosures we have special thick pet screening and other materials to help keep their feathers in good condition because if we're rehabilitating them in the summer and into the fall we know that most of your especially songbirds but you know raptors as well they're going to go through their basic molts and that's in preparation for migration so You know, every bird's molt strategy is very different, right? So raptors might only molt a couple of different feathers at a time every year, but your songbird species are going to go through a whole covert feather molt, which would be like the outside part of the wing. There's a lot of different timing differences, types of feather differences, which I won't really get to into the segment. But the key is in the fall prior to migration period, they really have to have those nice fresh set of feathers that have molted in to be able to help them with insulation. So the feathers closest to the body are those little soft downy feathers, which are really great for being loose barbed and they trap air and allow that air to stay insulated. But they really need the fresh feather layer on the outside that is nice and you know of good quality, interlocked really nicely to be able to trap that air underneath. So that is something that is super important for a lot of our species if they're going to be moving in and out of different colder climates. We also know that some birds strategize different in the way that they hold their feathers. And by that, I kind of mean more like their positioning. If you don't know or haven't seen it, birds can definitely move their feathers. They might raise a crown in defense, for example. I think of ruby crown kinglets or something if they get defensive and angry or as a territorial response. Well, In cold weather, what about the floofing up? Have you ever seen a bird puff up and be in this little ball? Believe it or not, balling up into a spherical posture is actually an advantageous thing for birds to help reduce heat. This isn't just for birds either, actually mammals have been known to do this as well, but they actually poof up into a ball and that sphere is actually really important. Uh, The surface area of the animal and where that heat is, it's, it's usually lost by some sort of conduction or radiation. And it's really, Most people think, oh, it's just a constant thing, but not really. You minimize that surface area by balling up and therefore you're gonna have less heat lost. So apparently the sphere, the circle, is the best one for surface area in relation to volume when you're a tiny little bird. So those birds will puff up into a ball, They will also do things like uh, shivering or shaking so that movement is going to add your extra heat and warmth and they will also even drop their metabolic rate into like a really interesting kind of like a not really like a hibernation for birds but just just the way that they're able to just drop their production in general and balance the heat loss that's that way they'll have a minimal rate of metabolic heat production versus times where energy if it's in like if there's not a lot they can control how much their metabolic heat production is so changing that up or down depending on the temperature. They want to stay stable, obviously. So we have their their core temperature needing to be very stable. They shake, shiver, puff up. They might also have ways to huddle with each other. So some species of birds are gonna be very large flocking birds. So when I think of like the true Arctic birds, we're thinking about like penguins, for example. And a lot of people I think know that penguins huddle together in large masses so that they can help keep each other warm. But you know, like the red poles, which do come into Wisconsin, although we don't really see the Arctic red poles, we have common red poles and hoary red poles, but they're again, large flocking birds where that flock of, of individuals helps to then keep each other warm or they're gonna find really dense vegetation to huddle and hide into so that way again the wind especially the freezing wind chill here in Wisconsin maybe they're gonna be more protected in those you know evergreen trees for example so that really helps a lot so they've got you know physical differences depending on what species they are because obviously a songbird is a lot different than a seabird who's gonna get wet you know that's a whole nother story if we're talking about their strategies because they've got lots of other fat layers and stuff that are different but we've got the differences in the thickness of the feathers the types of feathers that are uh, replaced the fluffing up the spherical shape that they get into just so many really cool strategies that they're using to survive in this time period so speaking of that that's actually a kind of a neat fact did you know that it's about 25% of their feather quality or changes there's a change in their feather quality during this time period so when they molt in the fall the feathers that do get replaced they actually might increase the total number of feathers by about 25% or more and that helps them then even further than just like being able to have fresh feathers that that extra impact of having 25% more feathers then keeps them even more insulated in the winter. So how neat is that to know as a strategy that you're just gonna say, oh, I want more feathers this time around of year. <laughs> That's really cool. How does their brain know that? It's very fascinating. But then another thing to probably mention is that the fat storage is just absolutely crucial for these animals. Um, And this is, I would say, for any species, we're talking birds or mammals that are living in cold climates. But the fat storage really helps them to be able to get through those periods of time where there's not a lot of food availability. And so the fat is there for times where you might have, you know, a week's worth of really awful weather. And if they're not able to forage or do anything, you know, they're definitely going to be using those fat stores so that, you know, they can can make it through to the February time frame, March timeframe as they are starting to then move back into more temperate climates. So fat storage absolutely crucial. And so they're actually starting that process in like August before the migration period happens. So they've they've got the you know metabolic rate that has decreased. They've got food availability differences that is health offset by fat. They've got the way that they live together in larger groups, for example. So just incredible different types of, of thoughts that kind of go into the process. And I want to also mention that, you know, if you're thinking of surviving in a cold climate, you're also thinking of not just food and fat storage and your metabolic rate and heat, but you're also thinking about things like uh, staying hydrated. We do see a lot of dehydration even in the winter. And did you know that some birds actually do eat snow at time periods when they can't find open water? I think that that's a really neat thing. You'd think, you know, the more snow you eat, the colder your inside of your body might be, you know, that's got to be a tough strategy, but they will definitely eat snow for being able to melt it so that they can actually get the water content, but then also some extra minerals that are being deposited by the snow melt. So, if you don't put out water in a bird bath in the winter, totally understandable. Some people are worried about, like, you know, getting ice cracks in their really nice bird feeders and stuff. Totally get it, but you know, it is reducing their ability to find open water during periods of time, and so then they have to resort to eating snow, but they really only do that in the worst case scenarios. So Water food hydration feather content all of that is getting through them through this time period for a couple of months here where it's really really chilly in Wisconsin and I just think that we should probably appreciate birds for their what they are and how they can adapt to this type of environment because as humans you know we're inside our nice warm toasty houses most of the time if we uh, have that available to us but because we don't have the same type of insulative qualities that birds do you know we definitely are prone to things like frostbite where for us, some of those birds if they are adapted to cold climates they're not going to have to worry about it but we do have to worry about the birds that can't leave on migration that are sick or injured or that have problems so they've lost feathers and now their skin is exposed you know those are the the birds that we're working with most during the winter time here in our state and be on the lookout for those and any of that can't get enough food to survive through the winter they're gonna be probably at your feeders looking for food looking for water maybe not looking very well Those are the birds to look out for right now. So if you find any birds in those conditions or if you find a species that you're like, ooh, that's not a cold loving bird. That bird should have already migrated, you know, pelicans or something. Those birds you should probably keep an eye on and maybe call your local rehabilitator for some assistance, advice or help. Because those are the birds that probably do need the help at this time of year. So give us a call if you ever find those species. Our phone number is 608-287-3235. And this has been Wildlife Weekly, talking about some cold weather strategies that birds use, uh, especially in Wisconsin and some of the Arctic climates. Thanks for listening here on WORT. This has been Wildlife Weekly.
1: This week on Radio Astronomy, host Andrew Nine says goodbye to an old friend that's been exploring the surface of Mars since 2018, the InSight rover.
8: Good evening, and welcome to Radio Astronomy. My name is Andrew Nine, and tonight, we're getting ready to say goodbye to the Mars InSight lander. Over the last four years, INSIGHT has been collecting data on seismic activity on Mars, and now dust collecting on its solar panels is threatening to cut off the lander's power, possibly for good. So let's take a look back and talk about what we've learned from INSIGHT. When INSIGHT landed on Mars in November 2018, it had two primary science goals. To study the interior structures and processes of Mars, and to determine how seismically active Mars is today. To accomplish these goals, INSIGHT had a suite of tools that included a very sensitive seismometer to track quakes on Mars, a thermal probe to study the temperature of Mars underground, and a radio science experiment to study how Mars wobbles on its orbit. So over the last four years, what did INSIGHT find? Most importantly, Mars is still geologically active. While there are no plate tectonics on Mars like there are on Earth, Mars quakes are still a regular occurrence. Over four years, InSight detected more than 1,300 Mars quakes, and InSight was able to pinpoint the locations of 50 of those Mars quakes. Many of the strongest Mars quakes were traced to regions of volcanic activity, which indicates that there is still liquid magma deep underground in Mars that can drive activity on the surface. InSight also found that some Marsquakes were the result of asteroids that struck the surface and caused the planet to reverberate like a bell. Scientists on Earth have used the information from those Marsquakes to study the structure of Mars in greater detail than ever before. Like on Earth, as Marsquakes travel through the planet, they bend and refract as they interact with different layers depending on the properties of the surrounding rock, leaving distinct patterns in the tremors those patterns can be decoded into a map of the inner regions of the planet that would otherwise be impossible to access. The map of the internal structure of Mars uncovers some surprises for scientists. The crust of Mars is thinner than was previously expected, only about 15 to 25 miles or 25 to 40 kilometers thick. This is somewhat thinner than Earth's crust, which can reach 30 to 50 miles thick in places or 50 to 80 kilometers. More surprisingly, the core of Mars was much bigger than expected, reaching out to 1100 miles or 1800 kilometers in radius, and it's molten. It was previously thought that Mars was a cold and dead planet whose core had solidified as it lost heat, but that turned out not to be the case. According to Insight studies, The core is much less dense than was previously assumed, meaning it needs less energy to stay molten and can stay that way for much longer. The asteroids hitting Mars' surface have also led to surprising and fascinating discoveries. As scientists studied the tremors from asteroid impacts, they found that Mars' surface was squishier than they expected. They determined that it was the result of water ice deep underground that muffled the asteroid's impacts. The underground ice reached much further towards Mars' equator than scientists had previously thought, which is useful to know for future crewed missions to Mars that can make use of these underground ice deposits for drinking water, agriculture, and even rocket propellant. InSight was also one of the first missions to study the magnetic history of Mars. While Mars today can't sustain a global magnetic field like we have on Earth, in its early days, Mars's core was hot enough and dynamic enough to generate a powerful magnetic field that left behind an imprint in its rocks. InSight found that that fossilized magnetic field is much stronger than expected, up to ten times as much. InSight also found that the magnetic signals from Mars vary from day to night, and tend to pulse around the Martian midnight. Scientists aren't sure why this happens yet, But the leading hypothesis is that this variation is the result of the solar wind interacting with the Martian atmosphere. Future studies will look at this interaction more closely to see what's going on. Lastly, InSight has been collecting tons of data on the Martian weather. While InSight has seen many weather events on Mars, including dust storms and weather fronts, InSight never caught the elusive dust devils on camera. Dust devils, which are strong, short-lived whirlwinds that pick up dust from the surface, kind of like tornadoes on Earth, have been seen by many other missions like the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. Previous estimates have put the number of dust devils on Mars at about one or two per day, making them a common occurrence. Even without capturing a dust devil on film, InSight has provided a lot of valuable data on Mars's weather that will inform future missions. Overall, the InSight mission has been a resounding success, and even as the lander begins to power down for the final time, the mountains of data that it has sent back to us will help us to understand Mars in more detail for years to come. This is Andrew Nine from Radio Astronomy. Thank you for tuning in, and have a stellar week.
0: And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at six. Special thanks to feature contributors Beatrice Lawrence with the eight o'clock Buzz, Jackie Sandberg, and the Radio Astronomy crew.
1: Super Dave Lawrence and engineered the show.
0: Nate Weggy helped produce this newscast.
1: And Jolly Pittman is the news director at WRT. I'm your host Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WRT local news podcast. Subscribe wherever you find your on-demand audio.
0: And I'm your host, Christian Knudsen. Up next is Spanish-language news with the Noystra Patio. Good night.